you prayed about this this morning, what the Lord uh, wanted me to do some teaching on, and it is very appropriately connected to Independence Day, which we thought was uh, kind of funny. So we're going to talk about, that being said, the freedom that we have in this nation right now for our faith and why the conduct and behavior of the church in the West has been pretty much entirely indicative of a lack of appreciation for that freedom. And so we're going to use this as an encouragement for you guys to be thankful for the freedom that you have, number one, and number two, what you should do about it. I know that there's a, a phrase that I've heard commonly from uh, believers in the Middle East. One of the common questions, I believe I heard this from uh, a minister and, and missionary by the name of Robbie Dawkins. He does a lot of work in the Middle East, apostolic work, things like that. And he said that he has had these Middle Eastern believers where there's harsh persecution ask him in genuine curiosity why believers in the West don't do more evangelism with all the freedom that they have. And that is a, a big question for them about why. Why aren't we preaching the gospel more? And so ultimately what you'll find and what we're going to get into today is that when you are grateful for the freedom that you have, what you will do with that freedom to demonstrate your gratefulness for it is actually preaching the gospel, spreading the word. Because that's ultimately what the freedom that we have is for. Because if this faith was just about getting you saved and getting you right with God and letting it stop there, then it wouldn't matter whether there was persecution in a nation or not. Because you could just keep it private. But it's the fact that this gospel is to be preached, that persecution exists, which would be resistance to that preaching, and therefore the reason that you're given freedom, or the reason that it's taken away. And you will find that in every nation, without fail, if you look at just the rise and fall of nations, there has always been, in the history of Scripture, a nation that God chooses to pro proclaim his name through, raises up leaders, builds his people, and then eventually it falls, and persecution arises for the sake of that name, the name of the Lord in the Old Testament, the name of Jesus in the New Testament, and then comes persecution. And it's so certain that there's going to be persecution that Paul says all who shall live godly in Christ, or all who will live godly in Christ, shall suffer persecution. 2 Timothy 3.12 says that. It is a promise in Scripture. There's another verse similar to that that I'd like you guys to turn to, which is in Philippians chapter 1. Let's go there first. Philippians 1, and let's start in verse 27. Philippians 1, 27. It says, only let your conduct be worthy of of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Verse 28. Not in any way terrified by your adversaries, 
which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. So I'd like to focus first on verse 28. Don't be terrified by your adversaries. This is adversity that comes for the sake of the gospel. This is not you being disliked for any reason. This is about, according to Jesus, being hated and resisted and opposed for the sake of what you believe. Now, he says, don't be terrified. Don't be afraid. Don't be perturbed or dismayed by that adversity. And he actually says, you not being terrified of your adversaries is proof of your adversaries' perdition and your salvation. So in other, way, in other words, in persecution, that is actually one way that it can be demonstrated who really is saved. Which is interesting. We don't think about this very often, but Paul says what proves your salvation is being not terrified by persecution. So, when persecution comes, it acts as a very effective means of filtering out the dross from the gold, the tares from the wheat, and the wicked from the just. When persecution comes, it proves who is really saved and who is under perdition. In other words, who is not saved, who will see damnation. And it's not who is persecuted, but who isn't terrified by that persecution. Because you'll notice that especially in moves around the world that are you know, atheistic or humanistic, and if you look at uh, conquests and movements like, for example, that came through Hitler, who was a very vocal atheist, they, I mean, armies like that persecuted not just Christians. I think it's unfair for us to think that as Christians, we're the ones that will be treated the worst. In many nations right now, we are, but there are Muslims also being persecuted. There are also Hindus being persecuted. There's, there's all kinds of persecution for religions all over the world, especially if, if this persecution is being led by humanism or atheism. So what God says reveals who has salvation is the ones who are not terrified by it. And the reason why it's supposed to be us who show that is because we have a hope of eternal life that is certain. The faith of the gospel is the only faith you will find in the world that actually preaches a certainty that you have eternal life. That whoever believes in the Son of God, whoever has the Son, has life. First John 5, John says, I have written to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's one of the things that makes this faith unique because we have that certainty. And if you have that certainty and you really know it and believe in it, you will not be terrified by adversity or persecution. So that means sometimes the only way you can know who really belongs to Christ is to see those who rise and emerge once a flood of persecution sweeps through a nation. Because Jesus said that those who endure to the end will be saved. So if you have people who claim to be followers of Jesus or claim to belong to him, but persecution sweeps them away, then it demonstrates in many cases that they never belonged to Christ to begin with. It's really important to remember this. And that's one of the reasons why Paul says it's actually been granted to you. Think about this. He states it as a privilege to be persecuted. So that's why we read in verse 29, to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, 
not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. It's been granted to you. It's a privilege. That's why you see in Acts 5, Peter and John are persecuted, physically beaten for the first time for the gospel. And it says they walked away from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. They believed in this so deeply that it was a reason to rejoice when they were persecuted, because that's exactly what Jesus said. If you look in Luke and Matthew, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He says, rejoice when they hate you, despise you, spitefully use you, and leap for joy, he says, for great is your reward in heaven. For so did they to the prophets who were before you. And then he says, but woe to you if all men speak well of you, for so did they speak to the false prophets. False prophets were always speaking well of in the history of God's people. People who are true prophets were always spoken of spitefully and hated. You will not find an example in scripture where somebody who was godly was loved by everyone. Jesus, who was perfect, was hated so much, even by his own people, John 1 says he came to his own and his own did not receive him. That they crucified him. And this, the same people, look, he's feeding the 5,000, he's healing the sick, mostly Jews who are being healed and fed. And they were the ones who shouted, crucify him. How does that happen? Because no matter how many good works he did, the truth that he preached cut to the heart. And somebody who is not in repentance, when they're cut to the heart, will gnash with their teeth. That's what the Bible says in Acts, in two different places. So be aware and be prepared to be hated. And if you're not terrified by that, it's proof to you of your salvation. So it's therefore reason to rejoice. Amen? Okay. So moving forward now, I want, to want you guys to consider something in... Philippians 1, where it says it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe, but to suffer for him. Why does it say on behalf of Christ? So what I'd like to go to next is Acts chapter 4. We're just going to look at what the Bible actually says about Jesus. Acts chapter 4. To suffer on, beha or on behalf of Christ has been granted to you to suffer. Why would it say that? Now, every time you see that phrase, on behalf of Christ, it typically means for the sake of, right? So if it says you're supposed to suffer, and it's been granted to you to suffer. Now, this is specifically persecution. I'm not talking about, you know, you get fired from your job or whatever. That's not the kind of suffering we're talking about, okay? This is persecution. Suffering for the sake of the word. That's the kind of suffering. So on behalf of Christ would mean that there is a sense in which we need to suffer for the gospel for the sake of Christ. Now, another way of looking at this would be when two of Jesus' disciples, James and John, came to him and they said, Lord, we want you to do for us whatever we wish, which is quite an audacious thing to say to Jesus. <laughs> We want you to do for us whatever we wish. This is in Luke chapter 12. And he says, what is it? Ask. And they say, we want it to be granted to us to sit, one at your right hand and the other at your left in your kingdom. And then Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. 
are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with or to drink with the cup that I drink of? And they said, we are able, not knowing what they were saying, right? And he says, okay, surely you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with and you will drink of my cup. But then he says, but for you to sit at my right hand and at my left is not for me to decide. That can only be granted by my Father in heaven. That's what Jesus said. So in other words, they came to him saying, we want to sit at your right hand. And Jesus says, are you prepared for what would come if that were granted you? And they said, yeah, we're prepared for that. But then he says, but I can't actually promise that you'll get what you asked for. So in other words, he just promised them, oh yeah, you'll, you'll experience this baptism, but what you're asking for might not happen. Now, what was he talking about? This baptism that I am baptized with. The Bible says that we're baptized into his death. And the cup that he drinks, the Bible says is the cup of the fury and the wrath of God. And it also includes, if you look at it in other places, Paul described it as a drink offering being poured out. It's talking about a cup of what would also be the persecution or wrath of the world against you and being willing to drink it. Question is, is it possible that wasn't able to be given and since he hadn't been risen from the dead yet? Are you talking about the sit at his right hand and his left thing? Yeah. Right. Sure. Sure. Possible. But overall here, what we are dealing with is God or Jesus promising his disciples that they would experience his baptism and his cup. But they wouldn't be able to know whether the reward would be to sit at his right hand and his left. And this is very similar to when he promises persecution. He'll suffer for the sake of Christ. Now, when we think of baptism, we think of, oh, we die to sin, we rise. But the Bible actually says that dying to the flesh requires you love not your life unto death, and that is death by persecution, if you read about the context in Revelation chapter 12, which tells you that part of baptism is also dying to the fear of dying. Really important. So when you got baptized into Christ, what you're saying is I'm actually being baptized into his death at the hands of the world for the sake of his word being spread like seed. Right? So if you've been baptized, you accepted dying. Being killed for the sake of the word. That's a part of what you were baptized into. And that's why in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you shall be my witnesses. It's the same Greek word for martyrs. You shall be my martyrs, is what it says if you look at it in Greek in Acts chapter 1, which tells you that receiving the power of the Holy Spirit seals you not just not only as somebody who stands as evidence for the gospel, but somebody who stands as a martyr both to the flesh and to the world if you were to be killed for your faith. So if you're saying you want the power of the Holy Spirit, you're saying I'm willing to be a martyr. That's part of it. So then getting into what I said we would here in, in Acts chapter 4. On behalf of Christ is suffering with him. There's something that Jesus benefits from by us being willing to die. That's what it means for it to be on behalf of him. So. Okay, I'm sorry, we can't read Acts 4 yet. This other thing just came to mind. And then we'll read it. So, Colossians 1, Paul says, I need to fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. He says, for the sake of the world, for our sakes. 
he says. Why would Paul have to experience in his flesh what was lacking in the afflictions of Christ? Because when we think of the all-sufficiency of the shedding of Jesus' blood, we wouldn't think of there being lack. Because Hebrews says he made one sacrifice for all sins forever. He does not have to die again. So why does it say there's lack in the afflictions of Christ? It's not lack of sufficiency to redeem every man or woman, whoever lived or will live. The lack that Paul is talking about is the appearance or actually demonstration of the love of Christ in death itself. In other words, Christ died one time 2,000 years ago, but the generation that saw him die, saw his suffering, and firsthand as an eyewitness, saw his love demonstrated for them. And Jesus said, moving forward as my disciples, your job is to lay down your life for each other. Which tells you that when you suffer for the sake of Christ on his behalf, what that means is that you are filling up or bringing to fulfillment what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, which is that What's lacking in people's minds is a present demonstration of the love of Christ in death. So in other words, unless a person sees someone suffer for their sake, they're not seeing the afflictions of Christ firsthand. So when you die for the sake of Christ or lay down your life and are willing to suffer for his sake, you become a perpetuated living demonstration of the afflictions of Christ and the love that's demonstrated therein. So, when you're saying, I'm willing to suffer, you're actually stepping into Jesus' shoes and you're saying, I'm living as Christ did to demonstrate his love. Because he died for me, I'm willing to die for the sake of my friends, my brethren, right? Laying down my life. So what this tells you is that there's actually an appointment to suffering from God. This is God's will. Now what happens is when people are persecuted, and in extreme cases to the point of death, they think, oh, this is the devil doing this. This is all the devil. But yes, even though the Bible says adversaries, what it's pro what's proven to them is perdition. Yes, they're being moved by the wrath of the devil against the church. That's also stated. The Bible also says that that persecution is granted to you by God, which means God is involved when we suffer for his sake. And the Bible actually says that we're supposed to know the fellowship of his suffering. That actually means that there's a partnership with Christ that you will only experience through suffering with him. There's a level of intimacy with God that you cannot know until you suffer with him. And that's, that's actually deemed a privilege, something to seek for, something to hunger for. Not that you seek out persecution, but that you're willing to preach and receive with joy any persecution that may come. There's a difference there. So, then it being granted to you, it be, God being involved in it, is what Acts 4 gets into. So, let's read this now. So, Acts chapter 4, verse 23. No. 21. Acts 4, verse 21. Acts 4, verse 21 says, When they had further threatened them, this is when the Sanhedrin threatened Peter and John, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, 
They raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. This is where the key verse is coming up right here. Verse 27. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. In other words, everyone that Jesus was around were gathered together. Notice it does not say to do what the devil wanted. That's part of it. That's stated in different verses, different places in the Bible. But it says they were gathered together, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. What that means is that everything down to every detail that Jesus suffered, even though it was at the hands of men, was decided and determined by God beforehand. So every moment of Jesus suffering, God was involved in it to show that he had appointed Jesus to this suffering for our sake. And if you look at other places in scripture in regards to the apostles, Jesus told his disciples, like I mentioned earlier, you will be persecuted this way. The, Jesus, uh, Peter said that Jesus told him after he rose again and ascended that the, the day of his departure was near at the door. God showed Peter when he was going to die. Same thing happened with Paul. When Paul was first called to preach the gospel after the road to Damascus, he falls off the donkey. Christ speaks to him. Ananias comes to him after he was made blind and he heals him and scales fall off of his eyes and he receives this commission from, from Christ himself. And in this commission, Paul says, or excuse me, Ananias, or Jesus says through Ananias to Paul, God has chosen you, I have chosen you to see the just one, hear the voice of his mouth. States all these what seems to be just glorious promises. Amazing privileges in, in his relationship to God. The last thing he, he says is, I must show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. In other words, God actually wanted to show Paul how he was going to suffer. Acts chapter 11, Barnabas encourages the church by saying, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. It's repeatedly stated as an encouragement to the church that they surely will be persecuted and they will suffer for the sake of the Lord. And it was considered such a reason to rejoice that it was included in what was an exhortation to the church. When you think of what will exhort or encourage someone, you typically don't think telling them that they're going to suffer is going to be very encouraging. But Barnabas, whose name means son of encouragement, said that he encouraged, strengthened, and exhorted the brethren by telling them this very thing. We must, by many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. That was his encouragement. So think about it this way. If God was involved in every single way that Jesus was persecuted and, and, and in every way that he suffered for the gospel, what makes us think that God wouldn't be involved in how we suffer or how we are persecuted? We're not bearing the sin of the world. This is a different kind of suffering in the sense that we're never going to suffer the same way that Jesus did because that was to redeem us. But what this does mean is that you're appointed to the persecution that you suffer. 
And this is why if you read in 2 Corinthians 11, where Paul talks about a thorn in the flesh, if you pay attention to the context, Paul says that that thorn in the flesh was actually persecution. He, he said it was infirmity or weakness that came because of persecution. And he pleaded, it says, three times that it would depart from him. And what did Jesus say? My grace is sufficient for you. What else? My strength is made perfect in weakness. In other words, when Paul asked for persecution to back off a little bit because it was hurting him, Jesus said, nope. Why? Because you've been appointed to this. That's what the Bible says. So, now let's get into what I mentioned at the very beginning, which is, has to do with the independence and freedom that we have in this nation. The Bible says in, uh, let's just read it. Go to Romans 13. Romans 13, verse 1. Romans 13, verse 1. Thinking about our human governments. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. The authorities that exist are appointed by God. Now, just because the authorities that exist are appointed by God does not mean all authority is godly. Keep that in mind. We know that that's true. There's been many authorities that were not godly. Verse 2, therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the, or resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. Now, the one thing I want us to focus on for this time right now is that the authorities that exist are appointed by God to resist the authorities, to resist the ordinance of God. God has set in place human governments on purpose and for a purpose. In context, when this is being written, when Paul says, give fear to whom fear is due, honor to whom honor is due, you also see this in tandem with Peter saying, fear God, love the brethren, honor all. And then he says, honor the king. Lowercase k, he's not talking about King Jesus. The king that Peter was talking about was Nero. An emperor. This emperor was most likely demon-possessed, so out of his mind, that he on purpose set Rome on fire and then blamed it on the Christians so that the Romans would be mad at the Christians and try to kill them. And to persecute them, he would... hang them on crosses, not crucify them, but strap them to wooden beams, smother them in tar and light them on fire as torches to light the streets of Rome. This is Nero. Peter is saying, honor that guy. Why? 
because the authorities that exist come from God. They're appointed by God. Now, if we're thinking about God's all-powerful sovereignty and watchfulness over his own people whom he loves so dearly, why would he appoint that why would he appoint authorities that he knows full well are going to oppose the gospel? It's for the same reason that God appointed authorities that he knew would crucify Jesus. Because it's how he demonstrates his love. In other words, when there are kings or rulers in authority who use a sword that God gave them against the church, God uses it as a way to demonstrate his love through the self-sacrifice of his people to the world. Which is why we're to honor the kings that are in place, regardless of who they are, what they believe, or what they do. Because every authority that is in place serves a purpose. And you will find, and this is just very interesting, that as the church is glorified, and as we become more and more like Christ, and the more, of Christ, the more that Christ's will is accomplished in this world, you will find that it seems the world gets worse. So as the church grows, the world gets worse. And it just so happens that as the church increases in glory and in power and in the grace of God, governments start to get more wicked and more wicked and more wicked. And Paul said evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse. He says this in Timothy, right? Why does it seem that while the church is increasing, God allows authorities to be appointed that grow worse and worse. Because as the church is glorified, it can handle more. And so as the world gets darker, the persecution of that world against the church results in a persecution that increases the level of our fellowship, our unity, the demonstration of our love to the world. The church being glorified means persecution being increased, being increased because that's the way that God has shown his love. And Jesus set the example. So God is involved in all of it. He's got a big plan, right? The plan is perfect. God is in control in the sense that nothing escapes his awareness or his attention. He's involved in all of it. This doesn't mean that everything that happens is God's will, but what it does mean is that his will is being accomplished in this world. It will be done. It will be done through the church. The Bible says God is faithful. He will do what he has promised to do. And he is fully aware when there are governments and kings and rulers in place who are mistreating the church or putting policies in place that are against the word of God. Correct. Yep. Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah, this doesn't mean you obey what a king says to do if it requires you to disobey the word of God. Right. But he does say one way you show honor is by paying taxes. <laughs> so pay your taxes. <laughs> Good moral of the story. So Peter, like this is so funny. Peter's the guy who's saying honor the king and he's paying taxes to the guy who's killing his brothers and sisters. And with those taxes, he's paying the soldiers doing the killing. And he didn't call that a waste of tax dollars. Sorry to say, but it's just in the Bible. Okay, so, pay to Caesar what is Caesar's, right? So we don't have to be afraid. 
Paul says the only reason that you should, or Peter, excuse me, says the only reason you should be afraid of the wrath of these governments is if you are punished for doing evil. He says, if you're punished for doing good, that's commendable before God. Rejoice when that happens, right? So when he says, be in no way terrified by your adversaries, he's talking about, do not fear when you're punished for doing good, which is obeying the word of God. But you do have reason to fear if you do evil. And one of those evils is resisting the authority that God has put in place. So this sometimes can be, it gets confused because sometimes we think that it's the job of the church to overthrow wicked authorities and try to restore the glory of Solomon's kingdom where everybody gets paid what they want. And things are the way we want them to be and for the world to just be this giant Christian utopia. But that's not what the Bible says to do. So be careful about what you believe and what you purport in terms of your politics because your kingdom and Christ's kingdom is not of this world. God did not put you on this earth to build a kingdom like, like a human government type kingdom. He said to build his kingdom, which is within you, and it's a kingdom that will come. And Christ is the one, when he physically returns, who's going to set up his kingdom. That's not your job. Your job is to spread that seed, the seed that will become his kingdom later. But it's not of this world, so don't try to make it of this world. So in terms of politics, this means make sure that you're not purporting or spreading information that is characteristically a resistance to authorities that God has ordained. And in many cases, this means Christians want to have different authorities in place because we will think, well, we don't want to be persecuted. So we should put people in power who will be nice to us. But God has said, it has been appointed to you to suffer for his sake, even at the hands of the authorities that he's put in place. This doesn't mean you do nothing and don't vote. And that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that you can fully expect that as the world or the church gets brighter, the world's going to get darker, evil, evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse. And you can trust that God is still in charge and still in control and still has a plan, even when there's ungodly authorities in place. And if those ungodly, ungodly authorities persecute you, rejoice. Because God has appointed you to that persecution. It's part of his will. So if you ask and plead for it to depart from you three times, like Paul did, he's going to say, my grace is sufficient for you. Mm -hmm. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world, right? You have good cheer. It's going to be okay. So. Yeah, he still wins in the end. Yes, exactly. Yes. Right. What's the balance? The question in short is basically there's a lot of confusion around what the role of the Christian is in politics. One extreme is everything's about politics and the other extreme is you do nothing at all. 
What's the balance? So I think that Jesus addresses this directly in terms and words that we might find a little bit more mysterious, but I think he's actually pretty clear about what we're supposed to do. In John chapter 18, when he was being arrested, or after he was arrested, excuse me, he's standing before Pontius Pilate, and he makes a statement that a lot of us overlook. He said, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants or my disciples would fight so that I would not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not of this world. Here's what he's saying. If my kingdom were of this world, if it were about building a government here and right now, I would be appointing my servants to fight against my arrest. What's a modern day example of that? When godly influence, which is really what Christ is, the salt of the earth, the leaven in the lump, right? Us resisting Christ being persecuted would be something that we would do if our kingdom were of this world. Part of God's kingdom is Christ being resisted and persecuted for the sake of the word. So when Jesus talked about what you should do, he said, pay your taxes, give to Caesar what is Caesar, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, which tells you, there is a certain responsibility that we have to contribute to what human governments do. And if you look at in the Old Testament, there's a lot of examples of this. Beyond just paying your taxes, what kind of influence should you have? Perfect example of this is Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I would encourage you guys to just read the book of Daniel. That'll tell you exactly the kind of influence we're supposed to have in politics. And here's what they did. They lived a godly life these four men, in the sight of the world, they did not bow down to the idols that the government they knew put in place, even to them being thrown in a fiery furnace. And their wisdom granted them so much favor that the king consulted them in matters of the kingdom's government governance. Which means our influence is salt and leaven. This is what Jesus said. In the world, your influence is not on the pedestal. It's not at the podium. It's not political rallies. The Bible says the influence of the church is to be like leaven that creeps its way in. From person to person, face to face, house to house. In other words, if you apply Daniel and his friends model to the New Testament, what that tells you is that us preaching the gospel everywhere is what allows us a voice in the minds of these politicians. But it's not done politically. It's done evangelistically in the sense that we just simply obey what Jesus said to do, which is preach the gospel to every creature. And you will find that if you preach the gospel to every creature, you're eventually going to find that that gospel will be heard by a politician. Right. And sometimes it'll be at his own home. You don't know how it's going to happen. You don't know how preaching to one person who might know someone who might know the president. 
Jesus said the way we influence the world is like leaven. It is hidden. It is not to be what's most prominent. So in other words, pay your taxes, contribute to what this government does, influence the governments of this world through your preaching of the gospel as much as possible. And if you are given a voice in a way that's directly political, like Daniel, you honor, honor the king, like Daniel honored Nebuchadnezzar, and contribute the wisdom of God that he gives you. But the Bible says that Daniel was granted that position by God. He did not seek it. So if God, I, I do believe that God might call, just like Daniel, certain individuals to a political realm. I don't have any problem with that. I don't think scripture does either. But for the general public, your job is, I would say, to the, if it's in your power, vote, pay your taxes, and preach the gospel to every creature. Yes. Prayer. Yes. That's absolutely included. That's included in preaching the gospel. First of all, he says, prayers and intercessions be made for all men, for kings and those who are in authority. Pray for those who are in authority, pay taxes, vote, preach the gospel to every creature. Did you have a comment? I'm not exactly sure. I think it's Matthew 13. I will verify that real quick. Mustard seed, wheat and tares. Pearl, it's not Matthew 13. It's in, a, it's in a set of parables where he talks about a woman who hid leaven and three measures of meal until it was all leavened. Oh, it is 13. Okay. Oh, yes, you're correct. It's just one verse. That's why I missed it. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for that, Dolores. So, yeah, Matthew 13, 33. Yeah, so it's just really important that we do not... According to John 18, Jesus' words, we do not view his kingdom as one of this world. Because if we do, then we will fight to resist persecution against Christ in a nation. But Jesus said, my servants are not supposed to fight against that. Because we're appointed to persecution. So our influence is supposed to be like leaven. Hidden. Not forefront. Does that make sense to everyone? Any more questions? We are. Yep. Appointed to die. We're yep. dead, aren't we? Yep. So, dead. <laughs> if you're dead, just die. There you go. Yep. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> One more comment about this. Paul is another good example in the New Testament. So, Daniel is a good example in the Old Testament about how you can have political influence, and it's underhanded. 
Paul has an example in the New Testament. Paul was preaching the gospel to every creature, everywhere. And he created such a stir in the cities where his work was being done that he had to be brought before politicians so they could find out why their city was in such unrest. In other words, if you want to have a voice before governors and kings, Jesus said the way it's done is you preach and then you will be brought before governors and kings and scourged in their synagogues because of your preaching. That's supposed to be our involvement in politics. In other words, they have to arrest you and they have to talk to you because you're turning the world upside down with the gospel. Matthew 10. And then if you look at like Paul's example, if you read Acts, Acts like 24 through the end of the book of Acts, there's just two different examples where <laughs> Paul was very good at this. He was, he was wise as serpents, right? He, he was brought before kind of a lower in the food chain Roman official. And this, this, this Roman official was like, I could let you go right now. And Paul said, no, I want to make an appeal to Caesar. In other words, Paul's like, no, I'd rather go through the work and imprisonment and shipwreck of getting all the way to Rome so that I can preach to Caesar himself. And on his way, he meets Felix, who the Bible doesn't say what happened to, but it's most likely that he ended up being saved because Paul was being held in a prison while he was waiting for the right time to be brought to Rome. And Felix, who was the governor at that time, liked Paul so much that he took him out of prison just to talk to him. And Felix was the only person Paul had a voice with at that time. At one point, yeah. 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 Um, but Felix got to hear a lot of the word of God. And it says that he, he feared because of what Paul was preaching. It can come from anyone. Yeah, the question was whether persecution can come from more than just governments. And yeah, you, persecution can come from friends. It's just any kind of resistance or adversity for the sake of the word that you're preaching, you know. Um, but as soon as governments start persecuting, that's when there's a real uptick in persecution because then you have world leaders spearheading resistance to the gospel, which is almost kind of what we're starting to see happen. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, they would. Yep. They would. Yeah, yeah, which is what we're getting to next. Yeah, thank you for making that comment. <laughs> so, um Yeah, that might be an example. So that, that's a good thing to make note of because the Jews actually worked with Caesar to crucify Jesus. So modern example would be the church that is not standing for the truth is going to be working with the opposing government to persecute the real church. Um, it might not be Jews because it's a different, you know, religious climate now. It's not Judaism. It's religion. Right. Correct. Yep. Yep. 
Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Grace. There's always grace for it. So perfect transition point there. So when we prayed this morning, the Lord said that all of us need to be shown to be grateful not only for him, for our religious freedom, but to be grateful for the leaders that he has put in place. Always, even if they're the ones persecuting you. Because if you're supposed to rejoice when you're persecuted, you can rejoice over the one doing the persecuting. (laughs) If you are supposed to rejoice when you're persecuted, you can also rejoice over the ones doing the persecuting. Is that what you wanted to repeat it? Yeah. Yes. That's a little, yeah. That's not persecution, though. So, also what the Lord said here was, it is on your leaders, or on, it's on our government that we even have freedom. So, be thankful for the fact that the leaders we do have in place presently have allowed us to have religious freedom. That can be taken away. So, always be thankful. Give thanks in everything, the Bible says. Right now, there's no law saying that you can't believe in the Son, in Jesus. (laughs) If we're not free, so if there was ever a law made that would restrict or remove our freedom to believe in the Son and to follow Him, we would not as easily be able to be brought to God in terms of anything that we do for the Lord and with and through Him. So when we gather together as a church, when we do evangelism, anything that you do as a demonstration of your faith in Christ, any of that will not be as easy. So be grateful for the freedom you have now to do that. This is where it gets really intense. So think about this in terms of those who don't know Christ yet first. The only way that people who don't know Christ will be able to be reached would be through the grace that Karen mentioned. God has to provide the power through his grace for us to reach those people. But then it says, and it would also have to be through the actions of people, and this is what God said, and these I would have to crucify in order to teach you of me. Here's what this means. The only way the gospel could actually be preached to nations where there was persecution at the hands of human governments was for God to send apostles and evangelists and people to preach the gospel who would be crucified in terms of killed for their faith. And it was that persecution, it was that death that became the demonstration of love that made people want to believe. In other words, if we stop preaching the gospel now, or if we don't preach the gospel now while it's easy, The only way it will work when it gets hard is us for to actually die for the gospel. So you either preach now 
while it's easy and get as much work done as you can. Or you wait until it's difficult. And the only way God will be able to bring people to him is through the martyrdom of the church. In the Middle East, they say that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Which basically means, and Jesus taught this, his life was a seed. What he said. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it cannot produce or it produces nothing. And he was talking about his life laid down. In other words, you, your life is a seed. Your blood, your lifeblood, who you are is a seed. And unless you die to self, you cannot produce anything. To Dolores' point. So that means martyrdom is actually the, the ultimate demonstration of your life laid down as a seed. Which means the, great, the greatest way that the seed is multiplied is through martyrdom. And that's why you see so much expansion and edification of the kingdom in nations where there's persecution. Because... The way that Jesus said, the ultimate demonstration of love is when you lay down your life for your friends. That's the most effective way to show the love of God. So when your life is laid down, even to the point of martyrdom, that's really where you start to see things explode. And so the, the word of the Lord for us was, be thankful for our freedom. Be thankful for the leaders, regardless of what they're doing. And remember that if we wait to reach people, until there's persecution, then the only way they could be reached is by God giving us the grace and power to reach them through being crucified. Which is just a biblical term for meaning, meaning martyred for what you believe. God will send people. And th these were his words. He said, if you are not free to believe in the son, I would send those to help on his behalf, just like in Philippians, on his behalf, right? On behalf of Jesus. And they would most definitely be terminated by the same leaders who give you freedom. Because that's the only way he, the gospel would be able to be spread. So we better be thankful for this freedom that we have. And I know that you will find it will be much easier if you preach the gospel now, then if you do nothing and wait until it gets hard. Yes.
I'm going to read the reference that Dolores just mentioned and the verses surrounding it. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. This, of course, includes persecution. Works together for good. For whom he foreknew, that's us, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. And if you read earlier, verse 17, If children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Suffering with him is part of being conformed to the image of the Son of God. If you want to be like Jesus, you have to be willing to endure everything that Jesus did that made him who he was. Not just the miracles, not just the signs and wonders, and not just the purity, but the persecution as well. And so let's be thankful. Hmm? A few sleepless nights, yes. Yep. So the big question, the final question here before we conclude then, is how do we demonstrate that thankfulness? How do we be grateful in action for the freedom that we have? There's really only one answer. Die, and what's going to happen when you die? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, show God. Those are all true. Yeah, show God's love. The thing is, dying is, this is not just you wait to be a serious Christian until you're going to be killed for your faith. Die today, which means die to self, die to the flesh, die to the old, live a new life today. And that, the life that you live in turn, which is preaching the gospel, using this freedom that you have to make disciples, is how you demonstrate that thankfulness to God. If you are inactive, you are not thankful. If you are active, you are thankful. Amen? All right, so I'm just going to pray to close this. And then